I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Ian Paisley Jr. is a member of the Democratic Unionist Party and is that party's Westminster MP for North Antrim and, as his name would suggest, is the son of the Reverend Ian Paisley, a controversial figure in the political and religious life of this island over the years. No stranger to controversy himself, Ian Jr. recently spoke to Jerry McArdle about his life and religious beliefs and began by talking about what it was like being the child of such a famous father. It was just normal. Um, I I hadn't a comparative life. You know, this was just my life. And uh, the fact that my father and my mother were involved in public life and that um, he was uh, uh, in some eyes notorious, in some eyes famous, in some eyes infamous, it didn't really affect us because he was just my dad. And I think probably the fact that, first and foremost, he was a... And is a remarkable father and a very good father, a very caring and loving father that that just sheltered us from all of what the outside world viewed as, I wonder what it's like to be in there. It was just a very normal household and him and mum made it uh, very normal. One of the things that always um, interests me about my dad and indeed my mother is that dad was probably the most incredibly busy person I ever saw. Um, He had always things to go to, had always things to do, was always writing. It was never a wasted moment. And yet he always had time to do the really important things, whether it was spending time reading and studying his Bible, whether it was spending time in prayer, and importantly, spending time with his family and nurturing and encouraging them. He had time for those really important things. And I suppose in my life, whenever I hear people telling me, oh, I don't have time to do this, how do you have time to do that? I, I, I find it pretty hard to grasp because I don't think anyone was really ever as busy as he was. Now, in 1971, you were saved at the age of five. How? how explain that to me, please. Well, obviously I'd brought up in a, a home where the father of the house was a minister of religion and so going to church was very much part of that uh, tradition. And so my Sundays were spent in church, uh, Sunday morning and then Sunday school and then at, at church at night. And we would have heard a, a gospel sermon. And a gospel sermon contains a very, very simple message. It's a good news message, which is, uh, look, you must be born again. And there's one way to be born again, and that is to ask Christ into your heart and to hand your life to him. And uh, that, that will uh, guarantee you, first of all, salvation forgiveness from sins and at the end of your life it will grant you eternal life in heaven and um, I, I, I believed that message and as, as a young boy I can remember very very vividly coming home from church and I remember going up to my room and um, not coming down for supper and, and my mother came up to my room and asked me what, what had happened I said I'm, I'm just quite concerned I want to ask Jesus into my heart I know that it's right for me to do this and it was a very clear moment in my life, which I still now, as a man of 46, remember as clear as day. And I took that decision, and I believe that was a life-changing decision. And whilst I had an awful lot of growing up to do and an awful lot of experiences to encounter, it's the most 
uh, important and pivotal moment in my life. But it, it, it was a very momentous decision to make, wasn't it, for a five-year-old? And it, it begs the question, you know, you say your sins were forgiven. What, what on earth sin could a five-year-old have committed to be forgiven? Well, again, it's only through studying um, the Bible and, and then through development that you understand that everyone is born in sin, that we're all born sinners. Uh, and that that came about in the fall in the Garden of Eden when uh, a man sinned, and that sin is on, in all of us, and we're born like that. And uh, it's, it's a matter that we have to acknowledge. And, and yes, as a five-year-old and humanise, oh, what was the worst thing he could have done? It wasn't about that. It's about the actual acknowledgement that I am a sinner and I require Christ if I want to be saved. Other traditions, other Christian traditions, including my own, would, would hold that uh, baptism does that for you. Yes, and uh, baptism is, of course, an important public acknowledgement. Um, but I, I wasn't baptised until I think I was 16 years of age. Uh, it, was, it was quite a, a different moment. We were in uh, Holland on a holiday in a place called Groningen in the north and uh, I was on the beach with my father and my brother and uh, we were just been having a conversation you know, about baptism and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, dad said well you know do you want to be baptised I said well actually I do but I've never had the opportunity maybe next time whenever church is running a baptismal service will do it and he says why there's a beach there's water we'll baptise you here and so we went into the, 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 the water and uh, I was baptised in the water by my father. Now, um, there wasn't too many people on the beach that day, so I wasn't saying it to a lot of people, but that is about a public witness. But um, I don't believe that infant baptism or baptism in itself actually uh, makes you saved. Uh, Someone once jocularly said it makes you wetter, but not necessarily Mm. any better. Have you ever had doubts about it, or have you been convinced all your life uh, as a Christian? I've been very uh, fortunate in that... I'm incredibly stupid, and I just accepted it for what it was. Now, in the 70s, uh, I lived abroad, and that was when the troubles were really raging in Northern Ireland. And you would have been, oh, in in your very early teens, I imagine, in in the 70s. When one lived overseas during that period, there was never any talk about... uh, Unionist versus nationalist, or indeed Republican versus loyalist, it was always perceived as being a battle between Protestant and Catholic. And your father would have been seen as being not against individual Catholics. He's always made that very clear. But but as 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 leading, as it were, the the, the rallying cry against Catholicism itself. Uh, did that rub off on you? And do you have strong feelings about about Catholicism? Um, that's an interesting question. I've never actually thought about it that that way. Um, I, am I? I mean, the, the, the dispute in, in, in Ulster, the dispute in Ireland, um, I've always viewed it as a kind of fault line in European history. And we just happen to be living along the main, main crack of it. And uh, that means that we're really divided on nationalistic lines, on which nation we want to be part of, just as a fact of history that the expression of one nation over another is also caught up in the religious identity of sections of the community. And uh, I, I don't, I don't believe it's rubbed off me of, of having a, a view uh, about Roman Catholics. I, um, I was brought up to love my neighbour and to recognise that um, 
just because you called yourself a Protestant didn't make you a better person, someone who called themselves something else, um, that you had to uh, value people and judge people for what they appeared to you as. But I, I certainly grew up in a country that was divided, uh, indeed a very divided city, a city that at times I couldn't go into, um, a place where unfortunately for times I had to go to school on a police escort, um, and that threat wasn't emanating from people of a Protestant tradition, but that threat was emanating from people of a Catholic tradition. Um, but I, I think I quickly learned that it wasn't people who were devoutly religious about their views. There were people who were born Catholic but had a hatred for people and probably didn't really have much of a religious aspiration themselves. Is religion a tribal identity to a lot of people rather than a religious faith. You're right, it was shorthand and easy to describe the Troubles as Catholic v Protestant and uh, people who lived here. It's almost like, you know, if you lived through the Troubles, you kind of understood it and understood the nuances of it. But when you went to try to explain it, the easiest way to explain it was, well, that, that side's predominantly Roman Catholic and this side's predominantly Protestant. And just so happens that uh, they also relate to being nationalist or Republican identity versus loyalist uh, or unionist identity. Um, so, so I think it, it was a it was a, an easy way to describe it, but not necessarily a very accurate way. There was also a rallying cry, and it may have just been a catchphrase, a deep suspicion among unionist stroke Protestants in Northern Ireland that there was a plot going on in in the south of Ireland and the, the rallying cry was home rule is Rome rule. Wasn't there? <laughs> uh, like historically it was very clear that whenever the um, southern counties of Ireland um, removed themselves from the British Union um, that there was a, a, an effort to remove the other six counties. Um, the fact of the matter is Northern Ireland is so different in many ways from both the rest of the United Kingdom but also from the rest of Ireland. It is very much its own place but it is, in my view, closer to a, the British identity and the British way of life than the Republic is. Sundays must have been a pretty dour kind of day. I mean, there were no playgrounds, no pubs, but I'm sure that wouldn't have worried you in your teens because I, I, I think your father was a teetotaler. Are you, by the way? Uh, yeah, well, uh, yes. Yeah. But, but uh, what, Sundays, what did you do? Did you just spend them at home or in prayer? Or did you, did you miss the fact that you couldn't go out playing football or couldn't go to playgrounds or dances or whatever? Sundays were... Um I mean, it was fairly normal to go to church on a Sunday morning around about 11 o'clock. And uh, I think the, the most enjoyable part, and probably still the most enjoyable part of my week, is Sunday lunch with the family. And that was always a huge event. Uh, and uh, where the family was definitely all together. And um, then, we, uh, as children, we went to Sunday school on the Sunday afternoon. And then usually back to church on Sunday night. And it was, I suppose, an habitual part of that, where it was habit-forming, but it was a good habit. And uh, the, the idea that it's all dour and sad, um, I, I think, is completely misjudged and misguided. Uh, if you truly believe in your heart that you are worshipping a wonderful, real and all-powerful God... One of the things which, as which I just grew up with, was that knowledge that you know doors will open in your life, uh, which you will step through, 
and you accept that, that that is the, the way that, that you should actually go and other things that you may desire to achieve, those doors will close in, in, in your life and that's the journey that you're actually on. And um, look, uh, it's undeniable I had a significant interest in politics, especially as a student, and that I um, wanted to pursue that um, and I wanted to try and hone that, that uh, if it was a talent, to actually use it. Um, but... but uh, in all my ways, as a Christian, I have to accept that, you know, I have to acknowledge him and know that he directs the paths of my life. And uh, that's essentially what I believe has happened in my own life, that uh, these doors have opened to me, um, that I've had the opportunity to articulate and to advance a cause that I believe in. And uh, taking that step at university to uh, and post-university was something which, uh, I must say, the one thing about my life which has always marked is I've always enjoyed what I've ever had to do. And was it a natural progression for you to join the, the DUP, the, the, the party that your father founded, really, didn't he? I suppose, yeah. I mean, I was brought up in a unionist family. I was brought up in a, in a very... Um, outgoing um, uh, unionist tradition and uh, the Democratic Unionist Party was for me, whenever I was a teenager um, I got involved in electioneering and election campaigns so a lot of my friends were also involved in those things and it seemed perfectly natural for me to, to, to join that party I never ever questioned it And as a politician do you feel that your faith influences your political decisions or do you leave your religion at the door when you walk into the chamber? I think my faith influences me as who I am and my one philosophy in life was be yourself. What I don't try to do is force my views down people's throats and say because I believe this, because I have this view, you must believe it. I want to deal with one or two specifics now with you, Ian. Just let me take you back to 1979 now, I know that you were very, very young then, in your early teens, if you were even that. That was the year that Pope John Paul II visited Ireland. And your father was quite vocal about the fact that he shouldn't visit Northern Ireland. Now, did any of that rub off on you? Would, would you think like that? I was probably more interested in the Boomtown Rats, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. <laughs> um, OK, let me put it to you this way. If the new Pope Francis were to visit Northern Ireland, would you have a problem with that? Well, well, I don't think I'd be going to meet him. Um, I don't think probably I'd be invited anyway. But um, I, I would have, I would have less of a problem in, in the sense that you know I, I don't think I'd be organising some sort of campaign against him. I, I am first and foremost a politician. I'm not a theologian. If theologians want to do that, they of course are entitled to do that. Um, I think we're probably further away now from a papal visit to Northern Ireland than we've probably been at any time, um, just because of the state, frankly, of the papacy and, and, and the, 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 the fractures that are going on within the Roman Catholic denomination. But there, there is a common ground between Roman Catholics and people of a Protestant background like yourself. For example, we've got two big debates going on here at the moment. One concerns uh, the legalisation of same-sex marriage. Now, that's something that you have very, very strong feelings about. And I I think in 2005, you actually um, got yourself into a bit of trouble, didn't you, over over your views? Um, Well, I think 2005 was a separate issue. It was actually the issue of what were my views on homosexuality. Um, The... Uh, I expressed them. I believe it's a sexual sin, um, just as adultery is. 
um, trouble is uh, nowadays you're, you're not allowed to tell people that things are sins and if you do you're a bigot, you're a homophobe and you hate everyone which of course is just character assassination it doesn't actually tackle the issue or the theology or the viewpoint behind the expression. But do you think that people who are homosexual by nature, do you think they should be criminalised? No, I do not. Do you think they should be allowed form partnerships and marry and, and, and have a legal standing? If, if, not, if not, you know, yeah. marriage in the sense that you understand it, but, but that they should be able to form legal partnerships and, and live in peace? Well, everyone should be able to live in peace. I mean, and more importantly, I, I don't think that anyone needs the, 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 the law or a statute to tell them that they can live together and love someone, um, of no matter what their gender is. Uh, that that's, was, to me, the most bizarre thing um, about the current debate on marriage, uh, so-called marriage reform, in that um, some of the people who are arguing for it certainly don't need the state to tell them that they're A and love and that they um, can, can live with someone. They're already doing it and have that expression. Um, but it's, but it's, legal, but but it's but, legal rights. Yes, Ian. well, its legal rights are now, of course, recognised in civil partnership in, in the UK. And uh, those legal rights um, are identical to a married couple. But my opposition on the, on the issue of changing the whole meaning of the word marriage was, in my view, an assault on society. I mean, the reason why you marry, uh, by and large, no, it's not always the way. The reason why people marry is to form a relationship that allows them to have children. Um, that's why it came about. That's why it was there. Um, children are the essence of family. Family is the essence of society. And when you undermine one of the foundation blocks in that, I believe you start to undermine society. And uh, whenever you then try and say, well, marriage actually now means that people of the same gender who can never have children, that it now means the same thing for them, it undermines one of those foundation blocks. And it certainly is not. It's not my view of saying to a homosexual couple or to a lesbian couple, you are not allowed to love each other or live together or have a relationship uh, with cultures. What I'm saying is that you cannot call it marriage if the essence and the foundation point of marriage is about essentially raising a family. Would you have a problem with contraception, Ian? None at all. Indeed, I practice it. Okay. Uh, the other big debate we're having in this country is about abortion. Now, an abortion clinic opened up in Belfast, in Mainz, at the Mary Stokes Clinic. Yeah. Do you have a problem with that? Uh, well, what I, I try to do is try to encourage people to, uh, you know, that, that they should not, because of their lifestyles, um, then take it out on the unborn child that they should actually, in fact, practice and be encouraged to practice contraception. Um, I, I believe that abortion is, is the murder of the unborn child. A very strong view on that. And I think that we have to, as a society, teach people that they should, in fact, be abstaining or indeed practicing contraception to prevent unborn uh, children from being murdered in their mother's womb. I mean, that is a, an indictment on any society, that the easiest and most convenient way to get rid of what they perceive as a social problem is to abort an unwanted child. Can you ever see any circumstance where abortion might be permissible, or does the mother and 
unborn child have an equal right to life or does the mother have a superior right to life? Um, I, I, I do see circumstances where I think abortion is permissible and I think it is where there is a significant threat to the life of the mother. I think that the, the, the mother's life, in my view, comes first uh, and has to. Uh, and uh, whilst that is an incredibly difficult uh, decision, um, I think that uh, ultimately that is uh, where uh, and where our law, and certainly how, we've, how it's been interpreted in Northern Ireland, how it should be interpreted and, and, and what is right. The, the, the trouble is that there are so many difficulties uh, with, with people trying to misinterpret that that uh, we cause an awful lot of uh, confusion. August 2008, when you were speaking after a number of attacks on the police service of Northern Ireland, you said that dissident Republicans should be shot on sight. Is that a very Christian attitude, Ian? Um, well, I think that uh, if a person's uh, life or country is in danger from terrorism, that it's perfectly Christian to want to A, protect the individuals, but secondly, to want to protect the state that the individuals flourish in. And uh, I think that uh, defence from attack is perfectly acceptable. And uh, I would have no hesitation and indeed uh, would have no problem if a police officer or soldier in Northern Ireland, if they uh, were confronted by any terrorist that uh, they should take action to not only defend themselves but to indeed destroy those terrorists. The flags issue uh, in Belfast and the ensuing riots, has this anything at all to do with uh, the flag or is this just sectarianism under another guise? In the last few months since, since this happened at Christmas, the, the amount of people who, um, particularly of a certain generation, you know, whether they be um, 70 year old um, grandmothers or grandfathers or whether they be young people who, who are brought up in, in this country that's trying to change and go its own way, that the one common denominator running through the unionist community is if we're in a new place, if our country has been stabilised, if there's an acceptance that this is part of the United Kingdom until the people choose otherwise, why is something like the national symbol of our country? Uh, despised and uh, effectively removed and our identity diminished. Uh, and I, I think it's it's too easy to just say, oh, it's a, a sectarian uh, issue. It's much more than that. It goes right to the heart of, of ordinary people where they feel it's an attack on their identity. And that, I think, has shown how foolhardy it has been to attack that symbol. As a father, one of the most um, interesting moments for me, and one of the most wonderful moments for me, was four or five years ago when one of my daughters, who was then about uh, 14 or 15, said to me, uh, Daddy, w w what are the troubles? She was doing a, a project in her school. I was one of those moments where I pinched myself, because I certainly knew when I was her age, when I was about 14 or 15, what the troubles were. And whenever I had to actually sit down and try and explain to her the basis of the problems that our country had gone through, I realised that I was talking to her about history because things had changed, things had moved on, we were getting to a better new place. We are getting into, yes, very difficult circumstances, but they were less difficult than the circumstances we had emerged from. And whenever I was able to, to try and explain that to her, I actually realised that, look, our country is moving on. And unfortunately, those people who for political reasons decided to once again attack the symbols of the state aroused a sleeping dragon. 
and that was very, very foolish. And I think what we should do, surely the one lesson we've learnt is that we don't actually have to go around poking each other in the eye to make a point anymore. I don't have to run around and declare in the media that we beat Sinn Féin and we persuaded them to become Brits and to sign up to the uh, support for the police and the security service. I don't have to rub their noses in it. I could. <laughs> I don't. And um, I, I think, think you've just done that. Ian. <laughs> I, yeah, but but I'm making the actual point. I know, yes. I'm making the actual point that you know we move on. You know, we, we, there's a whole lot of things we don't have to say, and are better left on said. And we should actually be looking to the future because now what we have are a set of circumstances, Jerry, where we're constantly, unfortunately, talking about the past, and that means that we then end up policing the past and dealing with the past. We really need to spend time policing and dealing with and energising our future. And if we do that, our next generation of children are going to be even more removed from what was a pretty bloody and awful past. Ian Paisley Jr. talking to Jerry McArdle. Your comments are always welcome. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie. The phone number is 01208 and you can write to us at the Godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. We'll be back next Friday at the same time. Gudji Shin, Slán Ispanacht. Gotta have faith. Mm, I gotta have faith. But there's a